Good morning, Dwells, and welcome to the Seahawks 360 podcast, where we look at the Seahawks from every angle, every week. I am your host, Candace Hagens, and as always, it is a pleasure and a privilege to talk Hawks with you. Today, we're going to talk about what are the toughest rooms in the Seahawks roster. And when I say rooms, I mean positions, essentially. What are the most competitive positions on the Seahawks roster? So let's talk about what those positions are and my projected depth chart for those positions. But first, it's time to get into our breaking news. NBA insider Woj announced yesterday that Nike founder Phil Knight and the Dodgers Cubbies and Smolensky, I hope I said that right, made an offer of over $2 billion to purchase the Portland Trail Blazers. Discussions are going on with the Powell Allen Trust, which is rumored to stipulate the sale of the Portland Trail Blazers and the Seahawks at a certain point after a certain number of years passed by. Now, a statement was later released by the Portland Trail Blazers stating that the team is not for sale and that they had an offer on the table, but that the team was not for sale. To me, that just says that the team will be for sale soon, both the Portland Trail Blazers and the Seattle Seahawks. Now, I'd imagine that the Portland Trail Blazers team might get sold first. But Seahawks fans should expect to be on the lookout that the team might be up for sale, I'd say within the next two to three years. I don't think they're at that point right now. It does sound like they're they're not quite ready to move forward. But I do personally believe that there is a stipulation in the trust that Jody Allen must sell the team at a certain point. I don't think that Paul Allen truly felt like she would be the best long-term answer to run these teams. And I think that's probably about right. I think Jody Allen, Jody Allen has done everything to basically stay complacent. And I think that's hurt the direction of both the Seattle Seahawks and the Trailblazers. So we'll see. We'll follow along as time goes by. But that's definitely something to be on the lookout for as it truly could mean a new era. Now, that's all the time we have for breaking news. Alrighty, so let's talk the five toughest rooms in the Seattle Seahawks roster. Now, first up, number five, the wide receiver room. And you might be thinking, the wide receiver room is not that competitive. I understand it's number five for a reason. At the top, of course, we already know DK Metcalf, wide receiver one, Tyler Lockett, wide receiver two. I hope you don't think the opposite. I think even more now than before, DK Metcalf will be the established wide receiver one. Tyler Lockett, I think, was very dependent on his connection with Russell Wilson and his effectiveness. And I don't know if we'll see as effective of a quarterback in Tyler Lockett this year. I think he'll still be very good, but I think he'll be the clear number two more more so than in the past maybe now for wide receivers three through five yeah that's a little different and that's where sort of things get interesting so the Seattle Seahawks signed Marquise Goodwin we talked about that last episode they also have Freddie Swain who sort of played more of the wide receiver three role last year and D. Eskridge who was the rookie we, we know he got injured week one. He had a concussion. He spent a lot of time out. It was a very severe concussion. He had to go to even Florida to get 
uh, some vision work done just because he was having trouble with his vision. It was a tough rollback for D. Eskridge, which is unfortunate because he lost a lot of valuable time in his rookie year. But in his sample size, we did get to see PFF grade. For those of who you're not familiar, PFF is, stands for Pro Football Focus. They grade players on a scale from zero to 100, sort of how they do. And I'll sort of talk about the PFF grading. Now, PFF is a little debatable. Not everybody loves PFF, I understand. But it is a good way to evaluate talent. And sometimes it doesn't always match up with the film because data will never match up exactly with what you see on the football field. But we'll use PFF today. D. Eskridge in his small, very small sample size in his time, PFF gave him a 58.3. That's slightly above average. It's not great, though. It's really not. He caught 10 passes. He was targeted 19 times. So that 52% catch rate. Also not great. 64 yards and he had one touchdown. So the question is, can DS Chris take a step forward to compete for that wide receiver three spot? That's really the top notch spot here. Freddie Swain, who I mentioned already had wide receiver three experience. He did obviously get more targets. He had more experience. PFF graded him lower, though. So PFF graded him at a 50.3 compared to DS, which is 58.3. Though, the plus side to Freddie Swain is he has more reliable hands. He had a 60, 64% catch radius on 39 targets, so he did a much better job of being a reliable target. And because of that, he got 343 yards and four touchdowns. So Freddie Swain was productive. Now, Freddie Swain does not have much upside. He's not very high in the way of athleticism or speed, or he didn't really have any elite traits. He just has a rather high floor, and he can do what needs to be done. He could, he's not the best route runner. I think he could be better about disguising his routes and all that stuff. He's, he's not that great at that, but and I think that's why PFF sort of dinged him a little bit. He's just not that good of a route runner, but he is a reliable catcher. If you get the ball to him, he is more likely, at least than the others, to catch the ball. He's no DK Metcalf, obviously, though. So then we got the third option that was just recently signed. We talked a little bit about Marquise Goodwin before. We know he has a low catch radius, 52% last year. And but PFF gave him the highest grade. So he had a 62.5 because on his speed, he's a much better route runner. He's obviously a veteran talent. Um, so he had 313 yards and he only had one touchdown like the Eskridge. So these are the guys that I think will be competing for three through five. I know some people think that new wide receivers that were just drafted like Bo Milton, Derrick Young have a chance. I understand that, and, and they have a lot of talent. Maybe Marquise Goodwin doesn't even make the team, and Bo Milton does instead. But I, I just don't think seventh-round picks, I see them as still very raw. I think they were brought in as more additions to the special teams. But I think Bo Milton has a better chance than Derrick Young to get in the rotation, but I would just be surprised if we saw this early from them, the ability to really push the competition. I just – I know Bo Milton – has a lot of upside. He has a lot of athleticism. I just don't know if it's enough to push because Marquise Goodwin is still very fast and Pete Carroll wants fast receivers. I don't know if he'll have enough. I don't think he will. 
That's my take. But I understand for those who do. For my purpose, though, I, I think the top, the, the top, the three people competing for the rest of those roster spots are Marquise Goodwin, Freddie Swain, and D.S. Which we'll talk about the competition later, and that's sort of why it is a competitive room, right? Because you do have younger talent in the wings that can provide great depth for your wide receiver room. Now, it was really difficult to try to choose my projections because a lot of these players they do have flaws, right? They they either aren't great route runners or they aren't as reliable as, you know, targets. And so there's there's a lot of room for argument here. I'll admit that just there's a lot of room for debate. So comment um, on the post as you guys see this on Twitter. Give me your feedback. But I think ultimately my way too early projections before we go through preseason I think they go ahead and give D. Eskridge, I can't talk. (laughs) They go ahead and give D. Eskridge that third spot, wide receiver three. I think they want to see his upside. Freddie Swain had an opportunity. You saw what he had. I think Freddie Swain pretty much is what he's going to be. I'm not seeing much room for growth. I think he can grow with his route running, but I just, I'm not expecting a next step per se, just kind of mediocre type of steps moving forward. So I think D.S. Scritch does have a lot of upside if he could put it together with his speed, with his quickness, his athleticism, he can be a valuable piece to the offense. And so I think they give him the wide receiver three opportunity. And so I think a lot of you might think I'd say Marquise Goodwin would then get number four in Freddie Twain because of his upside would get five. But that's actually not how I think it's going to go. I think D.S. Scritch is wide receiver number three. I actually think they still go Freddie Swain with four because like I said, he's got the higher floor. And when the quarterback room looks like how the quarterback room looks like, you need wide receivers that can be reliable. I don't think they can afford to have two, two for sure, Marquise Goodwin and D. Eskridge, two wide receivers that aren't reliable targets, um, no matter what direction they go. Drew Locke, that was one of the things people said is that wide receivers would drop a lot of his passes. We don't want to put Drew Locke in the same position if he's going to start. And if it's Geno, you don't want to put him in that position because they're just not good enough quarterbacks in order to, to make wide receivers who can't make catches work. That, that can kill the offense because it's not going to take much to kill it. It's going to take a lot to get the offense running. You need reliable pass catchers. And so I think they go Freddie Swain. And then I think Marquise Goodwin is wide receiver five. They'll bring him in, obviously. I think they'll rotate. I actually foresee that they'll start D.S. Scritch, but there'll be a lot. You'll still see a lot of Goodwin if he makes it through training camp. I think he will be uh, a regular target. I think they got him for a reason. I think they see him as a part of their offense still, even though he's not the most reliable target. If you don't agree... Like I said, I understand. But keep in mind, DK is not known for having the best hands in the world. Now, him and Gino had a relatively good connection. Yet when when Gino was starting, they had DK had 214 yards and four touchdowns. That was actually quite a bit. I believe it's four touchdowns. I have to double check that. I apologize for not knowing that off the top of my head, but I, I believe it was four touchdowns. 
214 yards. It was actually better than some stretches that he'd had with Russ. When Russ came back, him and Geno's connection looked best. So DK might be better in pass catching than he was with Russ. They sort of seemed to struggle with chemistry on and off, but he's still not known. His career catch rate is still 60%, which isn't great. Tyler Lockett's career catch rate is 70%. And so you just can't afford, in my opinion, to have DK, who's sort of a liability, and then two depth pieces that aren't also reliable with a quarterback situation that's, let's, let's be honest, is probably one of the worst in the, in, in the NFL at this point. If not, some would argue the worst. I understand that argument. So final projection, DK wide receiver one, Tyler Lockett wide receiver two, D. Eskridge wide receiver three, Freddie Swain, wide receiver four, and Marquise Goodwin, wide receiver five. Now, I do know, I don't know who ultimately will make the practice squad. I anticipate, of course, Derek Young, Bo Melton. Penny Hart just seems to be that guy that sticks around. I know he grinds, grinds the gears of several Seahawks fans. I understand he is sort of an older prospect, but he's he's come through. He's been reliable. He got some playing time last year, and so I think he's proven himself enough to be able to either make the active roster or he'll definitely be on the practice squad, depending upon how many wide receivers the Seahawks decide to keep this year. And I also, I'd like to see Kate Johnson. I still believe in him. I think he could, I think he'll stay around. I think he'll be a part of the team. He might be on the practice squad again, but I just like his potential. I like his upside. I think he can bring some good depth. And I think he'll push Bo Melton and Dariq Young a bit one way or the other. You'll get the best man to win those battles. Right now, I have Cody Thompson, Aaron Fuller, Kevin Cassidy. I don't, I don't think I said that right. And Deontay Alexander as cuts. Those are guys who are right now, I just see them as training camp bodies. They're, they'll be cut in due time. The fourth toughest room on the Seahawks roster, I think, is right tackle. We'll say the tackle room, but specifically, I, I think left tackle is pretty much under lock. Charles Cross will be the left tackle. Stone Forsyth, he'll be the backup. That's how that'll work. But right tackle is a little competitive. A lot of people assume that Abraham Lucas is going to be the starter because the Seahawks drafted him. He's excellent in pass coverage. I mean, not pass coverage, pass protection. And I think he's got a lot of upside with the run game. He was not asked to to do a lot of the run protect like run protections. They didn't run a lot. He really had a lot of pass protections. Not a lot of run blocking. That's what I'm looking for. Not a lot of run blocking that came from Lucas. That's really more what Jake Curhan was better at, and he showed that in his time. But I think this is a pretty tough battle between the two. It's only two really competing for that spot but I think they're evenly matched because they both sort of weigh out each other's strengths and weaknesses they they complement one another you'd kind of wish that they could take the best of each one and have it be one but that's okay that's what depth is for that's what competition will bring and I think Lucas has a lot of upside so the question is week one who's going to start so let's talk about each tackle a little bit more in depth these are both, first of all, really young tackles. Jake Curhan was an undrafted free agent, one of the few who was able to make the roster, and he started in five games last year. In his time, PFF gave him a 54, which is also 
not great, not going to blow you away. Obviously, he, he allowed four sacks in 405 snaps, but he had zero penalties. And I'll say this, I, I think that PFF was a little hard on him. This is one of those ones that I kind of disagree with. I think Jay Curhan was pretty he he did well i'd actually grade him closer to a 62 maybe i know he had some struggles particularly in pass protection he is inconsistent in that area that's not a strength of his game but he was dominant in the run game a lot of those big rashad penny runs rashad penny was running behind jay curhan and they would just be wide open opportunities for him he had a lot to do with penny's running game and and how it got going so I think he has a lot of promise, and he's got a, he's got an offseason under his belt. He's got a year under his belt. That was his rookie year. So for a rookie to start off like that, I mean, he's 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 really got the upside. I think he's still got a lot of room to grow. I don't know if he'll ever become the pass protector pass protector that a Lucas is. I don't I don't think that, but I think he's at a big enough place between his experience and his growth that I'm sure he'll have in his past game to be able to compete for that starting spot week one. We can't really talk about Abe Lucas because he he didn't play in the NFL last year. He's a rookie, obviously. But one thing we can say is that he had over 1,200 passing snaps and he only had four sacks in his entire time in college. So Jake Curran allowed four sacks last year. Abe Lucas didn't allow any sacks last year he's a four-year started in so four sacks in four years and that's pretty incredible so Abe Lucas has obviously got the pass advantage Jake Curhan has the run advantage Jake Curhan has the knowledge and some experience under his belt but Abe Lucas is more athletic I think he's more nimble he can give you a lot more quicker on feet um, and I think in the long term that'll make him better but for week one, my opinion, I think they start Jay Curhan. I think Jay Curhan starts, and Abe Lucas, I believe, will push for the starting spot. Eventually, I can see him taking over that starting spot by you know week eight, something like that, or after the bye, after the bye week. I can see that happening. But P. Carroll is big on experience, and he does want the young guys to go. But I could just see Jake Curhan, if he's grown with his pass protection, I can see them starting with him right now in camp. Jake Curhan is getting the first team reps. So to me, it doesn't necessarily mean that by the time we finish with training camp that he'll be the starter. But I think I think that's the direction that they go. And I think that Abe Lucas will push to start in time. So don't get discouraged. Now, I would love, on the record, I go on record saying, I'd love for Abe Lucas to start. I think it would just cement his, uh, everything that we think he could be. But he does have some work to do. And so until the end, I think they go with Jake. Because they, remember, Pete Carroll wants to win now. And so Pete Carroll is not treating this as a rebuild mode. If Pete Carroll was embracing the rebuilding process, then I think Abe Lucas would start, hands down, easily. But they want to go with the best guys. And Jay Curhan could easily end up being the best guy by the end of training camp. The third toughest room is the defensive tackle room. I, I'm going to say defensive tackle 
because I think it's, it comes down to two things. One, I'm pretty sure the edge is established. I believe that the edge will be Daryl Taylor. I think Uchenna Nuosu is clearly on the other side. And then your depth along the edge would be Alton Robinson. Alex Tachangum might serve as your depth. But that's about it for the defensive end position, or at least the edge position. What really gets competitive is the defensive tackles, which is a little challenging to comprehend because the Seahawks are changing to a 3-4 defense. And so defensive end looks a little different than we, as the fans and observers, might be used to. You'd probably traditionally think of Taylor, of Daryl Taylor as a defensive end. But in the 3-4 system, your defensive ends are more your bigger guys who can pass, like your Puna Fords or Harris, Woods. And I think it's best for me because this room is so competitive. I think it's best that I actually give my projections as I explain my logic because it it's a little hard because the system has changed. And so picture this, my projections on the defensive tackle or the defensive line room. I'll give the whole defensive line. Daryl Taylor will play the Sam linebacker or the edge. It's really, it's called a Sam and the 4-3 defense is more the Sam linebacker, but it's still coming off the the edge. They'll be standing in two-point stance or he will be. Him and I think Alton Robinson will likely be his backup. Uchenna Nwosu will be more of the wheel edge rusher here he'll be to the right side more often than not and he's the primary pass rusher I think the Sam is the 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 wheel should be the the best edge rusher and we'll see I mean ultimately maybe it is Daryl Taylor I'd love to see that and Wosu is more coverage that kind of thing but I think even based off of Daryl Taylor's comments about him being in coverage more, to me, that indicates they view him as the Sam. They've talked about him in the Sam, even in the 4-3. So I think he just picks picks up with that role. And Uosu becomes the wheel, which is the predominant pass rusher in the 3-4 system. Then I believe you'll have Puna Ford as a defensive end in the front three. He'll be, uh, he'll be faced up with a tackle. The nose guard is very important. The nose tackle, I'm sorry. The nose tackle in the 3-4 system is very important because the nose tackle has to take on sort of two gaps, two two gaps really, which is the center and guard gaps, if you can picture that. So the Al Woods is the guy who would eat up the space, basically, making sure that the guard stay in place and so nose tackle has a huge responsibility his job is like I said it's just to eat up space Al Woods has that written all over him sure he can apply some pressure on the quarterback when needed he can he can penetrate the pocket sure but and he did last year he did it successfully but his primary goal is to use have gap discipline he's not going to be a stats guy but he's important to the defense I think that's going to be Al Woods and then I think on the other end, your defensive end is Shelby Harris, who is a pass rusher. Your Puna Ford, Shelby Harris, they aren't your traditional pass rushers, but they can apply pressure to the quarterback. They That's their goal, that you want them to apply pressure, but they're not going to be your primary edge guys. 
And they can be very successful in that role. I think Puna will thrive in that role. And I think he'll be able to do well. I think it suits his part because Puna, he can rush the passer. He has some pass rush ability on the interior, but that's not, it's it's not, uh, last year wasn't a strong year in, in terms of pass rush. He's not going to dominate you. He's not going to be a 10 sack guy. That's not his role. And so that's why he's the defensive end, which in this system is a pass rusher, but less of one. So keep that in mind. I think it's these three because I think they're the higher end of the talent. I think those are the three defensive tackles that you'll see. Then you'll see some good depth, like Quentin Jefferson being rotated in. That way, I think the Seahawks still want a wave. And that's why it's interesting, This the, between the, the switch to the defensive system and the number of defensive linemen that they have on this team. I think they still want to do this in waves. So you'll have a wave of Ford, Woods, Harris. Then you'll have a wave of Monet and Brian Monet, that is, and Quentin Jefferson. I think Brian Monet will be Al Woods' backup in terms of the nose tackle. I think he can play that role very well, taking up that space. He's great depth. You don't necessarily want him starting, but Brian Monet, had, Brian Monet has shown – Great flashes before, too. I know his week one, he had a dominant, just sheer dominant performance. And so if he can do that on a more consistent basis, that's amazing depth for this team. Quentin Jefferson, I think, will be a filler for Puna Ford or Shelby Harris. He's also a valuable key rotation piece that I think will add a lot of quality to the depth of the defensive line. That's a tough competition. I I think Jefferson is more likely to push forward. If he's going to push to start anywhere, I think he's more likely to start over Poon. I just think Shelby Harris is a solidified starter. I think that's apparent. His veteran presence, he's established, he knows the system, and he does well in the system. Puna is a bit of a question mark. It's possible that Quentin Jefferson might do better in that role than Puna Ford. I, I doubt that, though. I think Puna will be able to figure out and make the adjustments and be able to stay that starting level type of talent that the Seahawks need. Quentin Quentin Jefferson is great depth, though. Then you've got LJ Collier, who, as a training camp, has been doing a lot of work with the defensive tackles, which is interesting. I don't think they plan on him playing nose tech, though, so he'll still play the defensive end kind of role, but they've got him bulked up because the defensive ends in the 3-4 system, those guys are typically bigger. You you want those guys to be more stout because they've got to cover more gaps, really. And then you've got the athletic guys on the edge sort of, Applying the most pressure to the quarterback is how this works. Those are the, those are the rotation pieces that I think will happen. I think practice squad will be Hewitt, uh, Gatell, Adams, those guys. Adams was on the practice squad last year. He might be on the practice squad this year. I don't think he pushes into being a key rotation piece, but you never know because LJ Collier has struggled. He just has. He struggled to apply pressure, and maybe this new scheme does a lot for him, but LJ may not make it. He might be cut. He might, if there's somebody who I think is in jeopardy of being surpassed by one of these, the guys who are on the practice squad, a Hewitt or a Gattel, I actually think Adams probably has the most promise. He did pretty well in preseason last year. Miles Adams, that he is. Miles Adams performed pretty well in preseason. He had a pretty good performance, better than LJ Collier. So it's possible that LJ Collier is cut. Last year, they could not cut LJ Collier because it would cost the team money. That is not the case with his contract with his contract this year. So LJ's got a lot to prove. It's going to be tough for him to really 
find a key, a regular rotation with five guys for Woods, Harris, Monet, and Jefferson, who are who could easily all start depending on what team they're in. I think he'll have a hard time finding himself in that mix. And so I don't really know if he is able to to really push. I think he might he might find himself looking on the outside at the end of this. But we'll see. That's my projection for the defensive tackles. Like I said, it's a little complicated because of the scheme change and people who were considered defensive ends are are now looked at in different roles. And there will be some interchangeability too. That's that's one thing that I think will make this interesting is, you know, as much talent as it is, do do they go with less guys, you know? Do they go with less guys and just kind of fill in holes? Like, for example, do they just stick with five? defensive tackle. I mean, that would be plenty <laughs> Five defensive tackle slash ends and rotate those guys in and out. And you just cut Collier Adams. None of those guys make the team all together. That's very likely to happen. And so it's pretty tight competition. LJ Collier, like I said, he's on the bubble. He's on the outside looking in. He could easily not make this team. And that's just because I think the amount of depth that the Seahawks have right now is pretty strong, which is important. And this defense is going to have to carry the offense in a lot of ways. Um, in, in ways that it has not been able to over the past few years. And so that's exactly how you want it to be if you're a Seahawks fan, which you are because you're listening to the show. So the number two, the second toughest battle that I think is happening in the Seahawks training camp right now is a quarterback battle. Uh, I guess you probably thought it was going to be number one. But it's not quite number one because it is just two guys. And let's be honest, they're they're about the same level. I mean, Drew Locke has more talent, but it's not overwhelming. It's not an overwhelming quarterback competition. So I think it's number two because of the situations with each of the quarterbacks. And they're sort of evenly matched in different ways and different strengths and weaknesses. But I don't think that this competition is just overwhelmingly full of talent per se. And that's how it should be. This is a stopgap year for the Seahawks. So let's talk a little bit about this quarterback room. The quarterbacks in the quarterback room are Drew Locke, Geno Smith, and Jacob Eason. I do not think that Jacob Eason is a serious contender to start. I just think he's back up. I think he's always an ever-present project. I don't think he has a chance at starting. So I'm going to talk a lot more about Drew, Drew Locke and Geno Smith. So the last time that we talked about the quarterback battle, I talked about how Drew Locke, I'm sorry, how Geno Smith had the advantage over Drew Locke because of his knowledge of the playbook. Well, I'll give you guys an update. Shane Waldron did a interview the other day and he talked a little bit about, he was asked about Drew Locke and how he was doing, understanding the playbook, his knowledge. And Shane Waldron implied that, that Drew Locke had done really well that he picked up the offensive playbook pretty quickly I'm interested to see how Pete Carroll views that if he if that's changed if that sort of caught Drew Locke up in a way in the quarterback competition now but Shane Walton implied that they were pretty much tit for tat about at the same place when it came to knowledge of the playbook that that wasn't a factor um, moving forward anymore so plus to Drew Locke that's promising There was also some notes that the Seahawks media revealed about the most recent OTA practice, and that was that Drew Locke had a lot of touchdowns. Drew Locke threw 12 for 16, 
He had five touchdowns and one interception. Geno Smith, on the other hand, threw for 10 out of 14 passes, and he didn't have any interceptions, but he also didn't have any touchdowns. So there's that. And this kind of confirms what a lot of us think and what we feel in that Drew Locke has the better arm, the better talent, and that Gino is just kind of there. Gino is what he is. Now, to a lot of you, that would be optimistic. And you say, see, Candace, I told you, Drew Locke, he's going to start. Maybe. Maybe you're right. But I want to say I'm not swayed at all by Drew Locke throwing five touchdowns and Geno Smith not throwing any. Because there was never a question about who was the more talented quarterback or who had the better arm talent or who had the better upside. You got to keep in mind that these were seven-on-seven drills. And so the there was no quarterback. I mean, cornerbacks were not allowed to do press coverage. There was no tackling, really, not, not much contact, no blocking. And Drew Locke's biggest issue is his decision-making. And there's nothing that quite forces decision-making like an NFL defense. And there, and he's not playing against that. I expect both him and Geno Smith to look good. I expect Drew Locke to look better because he doesn't have any pressure. He doesn't have any quarterbacks. The question for me is when they get in pads, when tackling's allowed, when press coverage is allowed, when preseason games start, will Drew Locke be able to make better decisions that keep the ball out of harm's way. I don't think anybody, the coaching staff, nor we will be able to evaluate that until that's the case. So I'll, I'll probably give you the heads up. I do still think Geno starts week one. This doesn't change my opinion. And that's because I think that when the pads start flying and the pads start popping, that Drew Log is going to start popping more interceptions. He threw one and there weren't any, any like, pass cover no 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 rushing no pressure no the cornerbacks weren't really up on the receivers and he still managed to throw interception and Gino has had his interceptions in camp too so I'm not saying that's just that but I'm just saying don't put too much credence in that fact but I will say it'll be pretty close so it's a tough quarterback room because while Drew has the higher ceiling Drew has the lowest floor, and Gino is more steady, so he has no real ceiling. I think he is what he is at this point, but I think he's more reliable, more steady, at least based off of his last three games that he started. Now, that could change. Maybe that was just great Gino and nothing else. <laughs> nothing else. We won't see anything like that again, but I think that, that Gino is the more reliable of the two, and because of that, it's, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a challenge. I know a lot of people think Drew Locke should start. If Drew Locke start, if he starts, I'm not going to be upset because if he starts, to me, that means that he's fixed his issues with making over-aggressive decisions and putting the ball in harm's way. That's great. I'll talk on this just a little bit more, though. A lot of people, the logic for Drew Locke starting is because it's there's a chance that you could luck into a franchise quarterback here with Drew Locke if he succeeds in the system. I'll be honest, that's not something that I want. I don't want Drew Locke to succeed in this system because even if Drew Locke succeeds, he's going to be a free agent next year, which means you're going to have to pay him more money. And granted, you're not going to be paying him anywhere close to $40 million a year like a normal franchise quarterback would be because he'd still have a lot to prove. But 
it's be higher than you'd be paying a rookie. I think the Seahawks' best bet is to redo the formula that they did when they had Russell Wilson on the rookie contract and they were able to load up at talent and all the other positions. I think that four-year window of, of cheap quarterback play is really important for the team to have the opportunity to truly make a Super Bowl run. I think Drew Locke having him as a potential franchise quarterback, even in the best case scenario, I think it caps that. It caps that ability, even if it's just a little bit. It, it, it'll be more than a little bit because I think he'll at least get 20 to $25 million. And so if he really proves himself to be a potential franchise quarterback. And so I know, understand what you guys are saying. I, I know Drew Locke has a ton of upside and it's possible because Drew Locke has had some unfortunate situations just with COVID changed offensive coordinators, even though there'll still be a different offensive coordinator. This is a system similar to that of, this is rookie year where he thrived and he did best and you could really come into something. I just don't think that's the best answer for the Seahawks. I don't think that puts them in the best position to be able to win in the next one to two years. And so that's my logic behind that. I think Gino, you go with, he's, you know what he is. He's a safe bet. I know that's why some people don't want him, but because you know what he is, I, I think you, you know, he can get you enough wins to to keep you competitive, but he won't he won't throw you out of games. You'll be competitive, but you'll likely still be in the position to trade up at the end of the year to get a franchise quarterback that that really could be on a rookie salary. I think that's the plan. And I think honestly, that's how Pete Carroll sees it. I could be wrong, but just based off of the comments that he's made to this point, I think that's how he sees it. And that's to this point, what matters most. But we'll see. It'll be interesting to see these quarterbacks go back and forth. I'll probably continue to report on things as I hear them, just so you can stay up to date on the latest quarterback competition. And like I said, Drew Locke will probably shine real strong here in these next few weeks. So get used to that. All right. Last but not least, the toughest room on the Seattle Seahawks roster right now is cornerback. We already talked about the quarterbacks. Now it is the quarter cornerback room, which is particularly interesting because it is the it is the exact opposite, the exact opposite of the situation that the Seattle Seahawks went into training camp with last year. They had no real cornerback talent. There wasn't really much of a competition. It looked it looked bad. And Pete Carroll and John Snyder were slow to respond. They didn't really get in new competition and new camp bodies until uh, two, three weeks before the season started. And so those guys couldn't see the field for long periods of time. It really, it was a mess. It was a mess. But this year they have, I'm not going to say overcorrected because I think they put themselves in a good position. So let's talk about, a, let's talk about the cornerback competition. I'll start with the easy stuff. I think I'll start in the easy stuff is the outside cornerbacks I think that position for the outside corners I think that's less competitive than nickel corner so we'll talk about that the outside corners are Sidney Jones who they re-signed from last year they signed him to a 3.6 million dollar deal which with incentives can go up to a little over four million dollars Trey Brown who is in his second year he was injured last year so we only have a small sample size of his work we'll talk more about that here soon and then two rookies that were drafted in this year's class Kobe Bryant and Tariq Woolen so let's talk about what we know 
Sidney Jones had a really strong outing in the last six weeks of the season. He had an abysmal start, really. I mean, he he had a he had a pass rating of over what he allowed was over 117. I think it was 119 was his pass rating that he allowed in the first half of the year. It was bad. It was bad. But then you saw Sidney Jones really begin to put it together. And I would, timing-wise, I'd say Sidney Jones started to look a lot better once they started to make the changes to the defensive system. I've talked about this before. And once they started making changes to do a little bit more three, four principal concepts, Sidney Jones came alive. And so I think that is a good sign and it shows good things are to come. They gave Sidney Jones, he's he right now, he's the highest paid corner. 3.6 million is not a lot of money at all by any means. And so I'm not saying he can't get beat out, get beat out because I think he can. His contract does not by any means obligate him to be a starter. So there's that. But I do think that week one, Sidney Jones is going to be starting. That's established. So then that just leaves Trey Brown versus the two rookies. And I think because Trey Brown showed a lot of promise when Trey Brown played last year, he had a PFF grade of 61, which is pretty good. I mean, it's especially for a rookie who was kind of thrust into the situation after injury. He was targeted 17 times. He allowed eight receptions. Not bad. But you have a year of knowledge to work up under, and I think he'll put himself in a position to be able to start. Trey Brown is a very confident, aggressive guy, and that's exactly what the Seahawks defense needed. So he was a breath of fresh air coming off of Trey Flowers, who was the opposite of that, to say the least. I think likely those are your those are your two outside cornerback starters. I think Kobe Bryant will have an opportunity to compete with Trey Brown. I would love to see Trey Brown rise to the occasion and just have Kobe Bryant as a rotation, a key rotation player in to relieve either Sidney Jones or Trey Brown of snaps. But that's to be determined. I think um, I don't think he'll start. That's my guess. But he can. I, I He's got the capability. He had a really strong outing in college. We talked about him a little while before him playing across across from Sauce Gardner. He got a lot of targets, so he got a lot of reps. And he showed himself to be uh, to be pretty good, really. And so great potential there, but I think he's more likely to be a starter next year. I think it projects out that Trey Brown and Kobe Bryant are your long-term starters. But who knows? Because there is Tariq Woolen, who is an athletic freak. Like I said, he ran a four six to a four two six combine. He's got incredible size, athleticism off the charts. And if he can put it together, he's raw. But if he can put it together, he's a star. He's a star in the making. And so we'll see. I, I think easily that Brian and Woolen could be the starters of the future and Trey Brown can be the rotation piece. But to start week one of this upcoming year, I think that Sidney Jones and Brown, they start that. You see Kobe Bryant a lot, though. You'll see him develop. And if he's good enough, maybe he'll beat out Trey Brown. We'll see, but I think that's how Pete Carroll will play it to start the season. The most competitive aspect, though, when it comes to that cornerback room is the nickel corner position. That's pretty interesting. I don't, they, they planned, obviously, to be in nickel quite a bit and for that to be a big part of the defense and the system that they're going to do because there are four people currently competing for the nickel cornerback spot, which is rare. 
I mean, that's that's unheard of considering only one nickel cornerback can be on the field at a time in general. That, uh, so that this theory has a pretty deep room. Last year, the nickel corner starter was Ugo, Ugo Imadi, and he had his worst year, which is why there's so much competition. PFF gave him a grade of 43.7. That was pretty bad. He was, he was, he was targeted 67 times and he allowed 56 receptions. Yeah, that, that was bad. It was rough. It was a rough year for Ugo. And it was sad because his previous year, he'd shown a lot of promise. He had a PFF grade of 65.6, a lot better of a performance, but a huge drop off from Ugo. And you just don't know where he's going to go. Really, where is he? So what the Seahawks did was they brought in Justin Coleman, who's a former Seattle Seahawk. He had a PFF grade of 52.4, which was better than Ugo Amadi, but also still, right, not great. He, he is 29. So He's older in age, and I think it's beginning to show. He's not as good as he was when he was on the Seattle Seahawks in 2017 and 2018. He had 23 tackles and two interceptions, so he was the most ball hawk. He did have two interceptions. That's more than any other uh, quarterback had last year in, in the corner slot. So that's that's promising. Then they brought in Marquise – I'm sorry. Then they brought in Artie Burns. Artie Burns had a strong year, and it was a small sample size, but he played under Sean Desai's system with the Bears last year, so he's most familiar with the system. He had a PFF grade of 79.5. It's actually pretty incredible. 27 tackles, or he's 27 years old. He had 16 tackles, didn't have any interceptions. So like I said, Coleman was the most ball hockey of all the cornerbacks. So if turnovers are important, that'll give him an edge. But Artie Burns is in the second year in the system, and the and Clint Hart has talked about how he he's comfortable in the system. How he's made a jump, defensive coordinator Clint Hart has talked about his comfortability, familiarity in the system, and how they're seeing some real improvement. They're impressed with how he's come out in training camp. And then finally, there's Marquise Blair, who. It's a question mark in nickel. At one point, they had Marquise Blair competing with Ugo Amadi for the nickel spot because they couldn't really use him at safety because of Quandre Diggs and Jamal Adams and Ryan Neal. So I don't really know where Marquise Blair falls in his few snaps and his very small sample size before he got hurt. His PFF grade was a 53.8, which was better than Ugo. He had 23 tackles, zero interceptions. He had 10 targets. He allowed seven of them. So not... Not particularly great, but like I said, better than Ugo, but the sample size was so different that it's hard to really, truly compare those two. So this is tough. I mean, these guys all bring something different to the table. I think Ugo still has a lot of upside. I think he had a rough year, but the whole defense had a rough year in his defense. And Ugo is best at at disguising things. That's really what he does well, which is particularly great for a 3-4 defense. So I think the new system change will work well for him. But they didn't bring Justin Cole back, Coleman back for no reason. They know him. They depend on him. And he's older, but he's he's the guy that can get your turnovers. I think he's more likely than any other of the cornerbacks to get your turnovers. A lot of people project that Coleman will start. I'm actually going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say that Artie Burns will start. I think Coleman is second. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what they do with Ugo. I'm not sure if they keep Ugo on the team and try to put him in. 
compete competition for the outside corner. I don't know what they do with Marquise Blair. If they put him back into the safety competition, it's really unfortunate. I'll say this is what happened to Marquise Blair because they never really gave him a chance his rookie year. He did he got limited snaps despite the fact that the opportunities were yet were there. Then they make the Jamal Adams trade and it pushes him down on the depth chart. He's never had a chance to play in his position, which was safety. And I'm not sure that nickel is his strength. I think they wanted to put him there to use him. But I just think he's fallen out of graces with his injury history. I hope Blair will have the opportunity to show what he can do in this league. And I still think he has tremendous upside. But with his injuries, I, I think he's lost a little bit of explosiveness. I think it's also a little bit of his first step. And so I hope he can bounce back. But I don't know. It's not looking good for Marquise Blair. But maybe they cut Ugo Amadi instead. I'd just be surprised with how they've leaned on Amadi in difficult times to really be there and have Marquise Blair is not reliable injury-wise, I think that there's going to be an odd man out. It's going to be Marquise Blair. He can potentially be looking at getting cut this year with, with tough competition, especially if they're going to look at him exclusively at the nickel cornerback spot. If they look at him at safety, he might have a chance. But even then, we already got Ryan Neal, who can play that role really well. I mean, you could have four safeties. Right. To replace, you know, both. But I just don't know. Yeah, I you just don't know. So that's to be determined. But that's all. That's all that we have time for today. Um, so just to review the toughest rooms that I feel like in order are wide receivers at number five, tackle and tackle room at number four, right tackle, especially the defensive line at room number three. The quarterback room, room number two, and number one, the cornerback room. Like I said, that's all we have time for today. I am your host, Candace Hagens. You can find me on Twitter at CandaceH901. You can find the show at Ethos Seahawks. So make sure to follow us both, share and support. Make sure to leave a review. On the next episode of Seahawks 360, we'll talk about the top offensive breakout candidates who will break out for the Seattle Seahawks on offense this year. Look forward to talking Hawks with you. As always, it's been a pleasure. I'm out. That's it. And as always, go Hawks.